Well, good afternoon, everyone. Hi. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Bron. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, I don't know what it's like at the end of the year for you all. And um, I guess, I suppose every year is, is quite different. But for our family this year, it just felt like so busy. And, um, you know, we've had family flying in. We've had end of year um, gatherings and celebrations for work. And then there are just some... Uh, not really projects that we're wrapping up, but just certain aspects of um, of my work that just everything piled up to now. And so it's just kind of felt like, ah, oh, just try and get everything done. But after today, I feel like I get to breathe a bit. And I hope that at the end of the year, you all get to take a breather and a rest too. Um, now, here, I'm just going to go like this. Yeah, so... Um, I just want to thank you all first for being a part of this community, and I want to thank you for responding to my personalized spam that I sent out um, last week. Um, I had a really interesting conversation um, with a president who was here yesterday, and like nothing has been confirmed, but um, at the end of work, um, I think it was on Thursday, um, Graham kind of tapped me on the shoulder, and he was like, hey... Are you free for a walk? And I was like, free for a walk? Like, that's never, I've never been invited for a walk by the president. I was like, yeah, sure. And uh, we just had a really interesting chat, and he expressed his desire for the conference to invest in city ministry. And that was really encouraging to hear. And I, I suppose as, as time goes by and as plans progress, um, we can gain clarity ourselves as to what that means. But I just wanted to say thank you for being present especially last week, and um, yeah, like it, those things matter, and so thank you. Um, today we're going to be talking about holy God, holy space, and holy people, and uh, it, specifically we're going to be talking about the glory of God today, the glory of God, and I want to ask you, what comes to your mind when you think about glory? I think of praise, prestige, le- and legacy that's built from winning championships. I think of good old Collingwood forever. Now, you might be wondering, Roy, do you have a copy of this year's grand final? Why, yes. Yes, I do. That way I can watch it over and over and over again and enjoy the game. Did you watch the game too? No. Okay. <laughs> yes, our boys watch the game. Okay, that's, that, that's a good side to pick. Now, I remember September 30th fell on a Sabbath, and I made the decision, I'm not going to check scores. I'm not going to talk to anybody about the footy, and I'm going to go home and watch the game. And so church finished, and we quickly drove home, and I put blinders on. I don't want to see any flags. I don't want to see any scars floating out windows. And we got home. We set up the projector, logged on to KO, hopped onto the couch, and just strapped in our seatbelts for kind of one of the craziest games that I think I've ever watched. I should say one of the most stressful games I've ever watched. <laughs> I was looking at the score worm from, uh, from the AFL website, and the score leader changed 11 times during the game. 11 times. At the end of the match, Micah just kind of sat there in silence. Usually we tend to like scream and jump around and sing the song, and Micah was just like reflective. <laughs> it was like, what just happened? <laughs> 
Joshua was dancing around the room, and the boys were so happy that they could sing good old Collingwood forever at the top of their lungs when they go to school. I knew that they were going to go to all of their mates who said Collingwood would lose, and they were going to gloat like there was no tomorrow, and they were basking in the glory of the victory of Collingwood. Now, in Hebrew, the word Collingwood, or the word Collingwood, <laughs> Collingwood is in the Bible. It's sacred, don't you know? <laughs> like, what, what kind of heresy is this pastor preaching from up front? <laughs> in the Hebrew, the word glory is translated kavod. And while English, glory might mean a physical manifestation or display of exalted status. In Hebrew, it means something else. It means heavy. The word glory means heavy. Kind of odd, right? I've got this ball of alfoil in my hand. Now, if I had a ball of gold that was the very same size and shape of this ball of alfoil, and I passed it around the room so you could carry and lift both, you would be able to feel the weight difference, and you would be able to feel glory. Yes, glory is God. Now, in the second sermon of our series through the book of Leviticus, we're going to be looking at the term glory, for it is God's holiness manifested. Now, just a quick review of the last time I shared about Leviticus. We looked at the end of the book of Exodus and saw how God's glory fills the tabernacle, but Moses is not allowed to enter in. So when we start the book of Leviticus, God speaks to Moses from the temple. But when we look at the book of Numbers, the next book in the Bible, we see God speaking to Moses in the temple. So the instruction from the book of Leviticus, it deepens Moses' connection to God, and he's able to enter into God's presence. So we're journeying through the book of Leviticus to gain insights into deepening our own connection with God so we too can step in his presence. God's presence in the Old Testament, it's really tricky because God's presence, it's life-giving, but it's also very dangerous. God's presence is life-giving, and it's dangerous. See, when God is present with his people, he's able to split the Red Sea and deliver his people from danger. God's presence is also allowed to provide water from a rock in the midst of a desert, and God's also able to provide bread or manna in the midst of the desert. God's presence, it means life. But God's presence is also unsettling. It's also dangerous. So in Leviticus chapter 10, we see Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and they take these censers. It's like these, um, it's like a container for incense. And once you burn the incense, you waft the censer around, and it makes the whole room smell nice. But they put this different kind of fire or a different kind of incense into this censer, and as they offer this unauthorized fire, God's glory comes out and it consumes them and they die. If you go to Leviticus chapter 8, verses 30 to 36, there's this account of how God wants to ordain the priests of the sanctuary. And I'll summarize here if you want to read through as I, as I narrate. 
basically Moses anoints all the priests in Israel and then God communicates to them there's supposed to be this offering that you're supposed to offer and then you're going to sit in my presence in the temple for seven whole days nonstop. They just sit in one spot and they're supposed to just think about their ordination for a whole week. And he says, you need to do this so that you don't die. If any priest goes, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm tired. I want to go home. Done, right? That's not, I was kind of thinking, man, what happens if my ordination was seven days? What would I do? That's, have you seen those um, YouTube challenges where you put your hand on something and the last person to lift their hand from it gets to keep it? It's like those people, you know, how long can they last? Anyway, this is, it, it feels like one of those challenges. There were also rules around being ceremonially unclean. If there was contact with body fluids, contact with a dead body, or consumption of certain foods, an individual would become unclean. And the act of stepping into God's presence while being unclean would lead to significant consequences. So if you look at Leviticus chapter 22 to 3, basically the consequences are God says you would cut this person off from Israel. It's like excommunication, except you get kicked out of your nation. It's like if you are unclean, you are no longer allowed to be an Australian citizen. And then deportation you go. That's a very, very significant consequence. So the book of Leviticus, it's like this technical manual for keeping clean and being able to share space with God. And as I was reading through the book of Leviticus, um, I just kind of thought to myself, man, God is pedantic. And it feels weird to say that up front as a pastor as the Lord is in his holy temple, right? <laughs> like I'm saying, God feels pedantic. Why, why is he so strict? Why is he so strict? When you look at Ezekiel chapter 44, Ezekiel makes this comment about one other rule, and I just think this one rule tends to unlock the mystery behind God's strictness. Once again, I'll narrate here. So, God tells the priests, when you come into the inner court, into the sanctuary, you're to wear linen clothes. And the reason why God wants the priests to wear linen clothes is because they're not allowed to sweat. In other words, well, I mean, I guess that's just it. You're not allowed to sweat in the sanctuary. Like, what happens if somebody, if a priest was just trying to, like, sweep extra vigorously? Like, what happens then? When you look at Leviticus chapter 16, we find that Aaron's undergarments, under all the priestly robes, it's made out of linen material. It's supposed to be breathable because they're not supposed to sweat. It's supposed to, the, the clothes are supposed to prevent sweating. So why so specific? Why does God seem pedantic? And I was thinking today as the weather, the, the temperature was going up, if that rule were still instated today, I'd be in trouble, right? <laughs> like every Adventist church would have like an amazing AC system. So in Leviticus, what we do is, or what we see is God taking a hard stance against anything that is anti-Eden, 
And that's why God is so strict. God separates himself from all that was originally intended in creation. So death, disease, blood, and even sweat. So when you go to Genesis chapter 3, God says, The ground is cursed, and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Have you ever, has it ever dawned on you that sweat is a result of sin? And I don't know why these th- thoughts kind of creep into my mind, and I just kind of wondered, is armpit hair a result of sin? <laughs> that's like, <laughs> okay, we're good. No, the theology of armpit hair, we're not going there. So in the story of Eden, after Adam and Eve sin, they're expelled from the Garden of Eden, and to guard the entrance of Eden is this flaming sword with two angels warning any wanderer, do not enter into this space, for it is holy because God lives here. So when we get to the sanctuary in Leviticus, we see very specific instructions given by God. And in Exodus, there's this summary of the sanctuary, and God introduces the plans of the sanctuary by saying, let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so God is telling Moses, Moses, I'm a holy God, and I want you to make this holy space so I can live with my people. God wants to clearly distinguish himself from all that is post-fall so that people can think through and know this is who God is. And this is what his intention was from the, uh, from the beginning of creation. No death, no, no disease, no blood, and no sweat. In other words, if you bring any of these things into God's presence, his glory, his holiness consumes that which is unclean. So God's presence in the Old Testament, it's unsettling. But if I were to use a metaphor for God's glory or God's holiness, I would compare God to the sun. It's something that we depend on for life, right? The sun, it controls the climate. It allows vegetation to grow. It provides energy. But if you get too close to the sun, it will consume you. If you think about it, anything that gives life is also unsettling. Water, for example. We are dependent on water for our life. But if we disregard the properties of water, that which gives life can also end life. So God's holiness, God's glory is the same. It's life-giving. It is also dangerous. So there are many observations that we can pull away from this one idea. But the one that I've been marinating on is what God's holiness means for me personally. I don't know if you relate, but I've grown up in an era of church and theology where there's this heavy emphasis on grace. And there's nothing wrong with grace. Grace is so important. But it's so natural for me to treat God as someone who is familiar. See, familiarity, it can take away the specialness away from something. I was having this conversation with my wife. And I'm probably painting it in a two-flowery term. I was having an argument with my wife. (laughs) And she said something that made me think. She said, you talk to other people differently than when you talk to me. And not in a good way. (laughs) And I thought about it. I speak to everyone else with a filter. But when I talk 
to um, someone who's close to me, the filter goes, goes away. I just, I speak my mind. Often tenderness and tactfulness, they're sacrificed. And I realize I do this with Jinha, and I do this with Jesus too. It's almost as if there are moments where I feel convicted. Maybe I should make this change in my life, or maybe there's this adjustment, or I should respond to God in a certain way. But then I disregard that impression and think, ah, it'll be all right, because it's God. Or when I interact with my wife, I kind of think, ah, it's all right, because she's my wife. There's this familiarity. But as I've been thinking about stepping into God's presence, I've been wondering, would I experience more of God's presence if I lived in awareness of his glory? Would I witness more of it? I need to add balance to this idea. I think one can become fanatic. Uh, one can become a fanatic chasing the holiness of God. So as a blanket statement, we are not God. We will never be holy the way that God is holy. And if we go back to that celestial metaphor, we are not the sun. We are the moon. We don't inherently possess light. We merely reflect it. So what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to possess the glory of God? As a blanket rule of thumb, I would say that the holiness of God when understood and respected, is life-producing and life-enhancing. But the tricky thing about Leviticus is that when we as people come in contact with that which is unclean, according to Leviticus, we also become unclean. So in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 1, the text says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell these things to Aaron's son, the priests, a priest must not make himself unclean by touching a dead person. So anytime someone that is clean interacts with that which is unclean, they become unclean. So then one can only maintain moments of holiness. And I don't know if that's actually the lesson. Maybe we should just kind of say, you know what, take a chill pill every now and then because you cannot maintain a status of cleanliness, cleanliness or the status of holiness. And maybe we just need to try our best. But in the book of Ezekiel, we get a different picture of how holiness works. So in Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 to 9, and I'll just narrate here. Jinha actually mentioned this last week as she was speaking. There's this picture of the sanctuary or the tabernacle. And from the tabernacle comes this stream. First it trickles, and then it goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and it flows through this barren wasteland where there's no life. And eventually, life begins to grow. Vegetation begins to grow. Animals and living creatures, they all gather together, and this place becomes this vibrant place for life. And the significance here is that in Leviticus... The sinner has to make themselves clean before they enter into the sanctuary. But here in Ezekiel, we see the sanctuary going out to the place where there is no life, and it then creates life. The opposite of Leviticus happens. And instead of that which is unclean, excuse me, instead of the, the unclean becoming clean, 
Here we see the sanctuary going out to that which is unclean and making it clean. That was so difficult to get out. (laughs) So this metaphor is a bit of a mystery until we get to the life of Jesus. And when we get to the life of Jesus, we see him, an embodiment of God's glory, an embodiment of God's holiness. And we see Jesus going and interacting with the world which is unclean. And that's why we have stories of Jesus um, restoring the sight to the blind, healing those who have leprosy, touching those who are dead and raising them to life. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, he, he, he breathes and enhances life. So if Jesus is holy and he's the one that does all of the work, what does it mean for us? Do we simply receive, do we become recipients of that holiness? Do we become recipients of that glory? What do we then need to do to become holy? Now at the beginning of the sermon, I said that uh, glory means something in Hebrew. Who remembers the definition of glory? Go ahead, Micah. Heavy. All right. There's this story here in Matthew that I want to close on. Matthew chapter 27, verses 36 to 45. And this is the story of Jesus right before he um, gets crucified. And here in the passage it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go yonder and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and very, help me out, very heavy. So here we see Jesus, he takes on the weight of sin, and it begins to crush him because it's so heavy. And he becomes this burden bearer for humanity. And what's interesting is when you keep reading and the story, many, most of you are familiar with the story. Jesus goes and prays and says, God, please make this cup pass before me. In other words, I don't want to bear this burden of sin. Please take it from me. And Jesus prays this three times. And at the end, he says, Father, your will, not mine, be done. But when he goes to the disciples, notice in verse 43, he came to the disciples and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. There's this contrast between the heaviness that Jesus bears and the heaviness that his disciples bear. For the disciples, their eyes are heavy. They're like, oh, we're so tired. And I was reading this story thinking, man, in the context of God's glory, I relate very much with the disciples. This idea of like, oh, like the things that I'm facing are so difficult, but really they have to do with my needs versus God bearing the burden of humanity. See, part of what it means to take on God's holiness and to take on God's glory, in the past I used to think that this meant I just need to do more. I need to pray more. I need to do my devotions. I need to get to church on time. I need to uh, participate in church ministry. And I, I think all of those things are really, really important. But ultimately, when it comes to taking on God's glory, I think one of the most important things is partaking in what Jesus partook in, which is the redemption of humanity. It's saying, God, I am going to participate in this conflict between 
light and darkness, between sin and righteousness, and Jesus says, I will bear that burden. I will bear that burden. I want to be very clear. Becoming a co-burden bearer with Jesus, it's not about just calling out sin and saying, hey, here are all the bad things that humanity is doing. See, when Jesus enters into this world, he lives for people. He's not just trying to condemn people and make them feel bad. And when I think about this, there's such a difference between living for Jesus and trying to inspire people to do good rather than making them feel bad. In Matthew chapter 27, there's this amazing picture that takes place. Jesus is on the cross, and he is yielding up his spirit. He is dying. And the moment he breathes his last breath, exhale, and he's done. The Bible says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And there's this supernatural picture that is being portrayed that as the veil gets torn, the glory of God is no longer in the sanctuary. The glory of God is no longer in the sanctuary. So the question then arises, where is God's glory? See, in Leviticus, the whole point of maintaining cleanliness and holiness in the sanctuary is to cultivate the presence of God. But here at the death of Jesus, the glory of God is absent. When you look at the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there's a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the followers of Jesus. And when you read through Acts chapter 2, the language states that there are tongues of fire that rest on the heads of the disciples. And so when you ask the question, where is the glory of God? The answer is given in Acts chapter 2. It's with his people because they become mini temples or representatives of God. When you read about the work and the mission of the followers of Jesus, they become participants in the plan of redemption. And I want to share that with you as a church today. As we journey through the book of Leviticus, as we consider what it means to be holy, as we consider what it means to reflect the glory of God, I leave that one statement with you. To be a participant of the glory of God is to be a co-burden bearer. Uh, to be a co-burden bearer for humanity. And as you reflect and pray through what that means for you, I pray that you would experience more of the glory of God for yourself. May God bless you as you consider his word. We're going to pray as we close. Father God, as we come before you today, as we consider what it means to understand your glory what it means to step into your glory. I pray that you would help us to experience, one, the forgiveness that's offered as a result of Jesus' burden bearing, and may we be able to pass on that same forgiveness and introduce people to your grace as we become co-burden bearers with you. And so I just pray that you would continue to watch over this church, that you continue to guide this church, and may we reflect your glory to the community around us. We pray this in your name. Amen.